everyone this is church history i think number 30 29 i don't remember but this is the last one we're we're going to cover here on the power bar podcast for a while we're going to be talking about pope gregory the great gregory pope gregory the first uh yeah 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 okay reformed presbyterian pastor jonah why are you ending church history and gregory the great a pope of rome well, of all the popes, uh, if I were to pick one that I liked, <laughs> I like Gregory. Uh, but we're also going to, uh, Gregory is connected also with St. Patrick and Columba. And so we're not just talking about him, but we're also talking about other things going on in the church at this time. Now, remember, the Vandals and the Saxons, the Goths, and those barbarian tribes that conquered Rome, uh, once they once they conquered Rome, they lived at peace with Roman citizens as subjects. And the new Germanic leaders... Um, stopped killing the Romans, of course, once the day was won. And what these German barbarians conquered were cities. You know, you think, just think in your mind, German barbarian tribes. You, know, you got, you got all the green hills, the pine forests, the dirt and the smoke and the blood and drinking wine from the skulls of your enemies and so on. Or mead, I guess it might have been. And then think uh, Roman Empire. On the other side, so you got walled cities, you've got currency, you've got culture, you've got bakeries, you've got musicians, you've got libraries, and all the rest. And so these German barbarians come in and they conquer the Western Roman Empire, and now they have all of this culture. They have uh, established government, they have buildings, they have libraries, they have hygiene with bathhouses, they have all this new stuff. And to keep things moving along, these German uh, barbarian tribes needed the Roman citizens. Uh, And because of this, they did not persecute the Christians, they did not kill more Romans, and there was a mingling of people going on in this new world that was being formed. Christians who spoke Latin maintained the Roman culture and life, and the German conquerors, who were mostly Aryan, wanted that Roman culture and life. Uh, The one institution that survived the fall of Rome uh, and came out on top, clearly in the West, was the church, whose leader from the city of Rome is called the Pope. He's the, uh, they claim, the head of the church. Uh, To survive, the church needed a strong leader, and the emperor wasn't going to do it. The armies were beaten, and so people began to look to the bishop of Rome to lead them. You look around, and who has authority? And, well, this guy does, and his name is Gregory I or Gregory the Great. He was born in 540 A.D., He became the Pope in 590, and he died in 604. Now, the Lombards, when they came uh, and invaded Italy, where the city of Rome is, you might remember, where the Pope led the church, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, now known as the Byzantine Empire, was not going to help. The Lombards come down, and they're going to attack and sack all the cities, and kill all the people, and the Byzantium Empire in the east said, not our problem, and so the Romans are left to fight or be conquered again. Gregory, the bishop of Rome, uh, went out of the city, and he made treaties with the invading Lombards. 
Now, no other pope had ever done that before. Of course, that kind of political authority and that political negotiation was usually left to the emperors, the kings, the war generals, not to churchmen. And it's not to say that a churchman in office can't be involved, of course, you know, as a counselor, as someone seeking wisdom can come to the church. And it's not to say that a churchman can't be a general or a king or anything like that, of course. But as the Bishop of Rome, uh, none of the bishops prior to him had ever stepped up and taken that responsibility to create a peace treaty with an invading nation or invading people. Gregory also, uh, taking on more responsibility, used the lands that he controlled around the city of Rome to feed and shelter those whom the Lombards had displaced. So all the surrounding villages and whatnot who had been destroyed, these people had nowhere to go, and so Gregory took care of them. And the church, the Pope in particular, he began to grow more and more powerful as more and more people relied upon him. He wasn't just taking care of people. He was directing nations. He also had power up in Spain, helping the churches change from Arian to Nicene churches, which is good. Um, he stops the Franks um, from buying positions for bishops. So remember the Franks with Clovis. Uh, to be a bishop of a church, they would pay people off. So if I wanted to be the bishop of the church, I would pay you know, $5,000 to whoever I needed, and then I would be placed into office. And Pope Gregory said no to this, that it was um, unethical, and that he put a stop to it. So again, that's good as well. It's just imagine the role of pastor, elder, and deacon being sold. So whoever pays me the most money or, pay, or pays the elders the most money can become a deacon. Um, it's that kind of thing that Gregory put a stop to. He also wrote and taught against Donatism. Remember the heresy that says if the man who officiates the sacraments has sin in his life, they are ineffectual, <laughs> you know, which would mean none of them would be effectual. So he argued against Donatism, which is good. He also argued against Manichaeanism, which is good. That's the same thing that Augustine dealt with, the Manichaeans. At this time, the church was being led not just by the bishop in Rome, but by five bishops. So there were five patriarchs of the church, so to speak, uh, and they were all leaders. They were all equals. There was the Bishop of Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. And these five men, these five major bishops, uh, directed the course of events for the church. That's not necessarily bad. Uh, and it's not what I think is right according to Scripture, but it's not necessarily bad as such. And there was not, this is a good part, there was not one bishop ruling over them all. Emperor Maurice, who was the emperor in Byzantium, he lived in Constantinople, he declared his bishop the leader of everyone else, John the Faster. So I declare John the Faster the head of the church. And of course, Michael, just by declaring it, doesn't make it so. And Gregory said, no way, Jose. So the bishop in Rome, he told the emperor in the east, no. And Gregory did not say, John the Faster is not the head of the church because I am. Gregory said, uh, or he taught that the five bishops are the leaders of the church together. There, there is no one head of the church. And this, is a, in the, this was something that Gregory wrote, something he taught as the Bishop of Rome, which is actually quite embarrassing to all the later popes. 
This is one reason why we like Gregory. Did he do some things wrong? Yes, of course. But he also did a lot of things right. So in regard to this, Gregory said, whoever calls himself the universal priest <laughs> or desires that title is by his pride the forerunner of the Antichrist. And I think later popes should probably listen to him. Unfortunately, Pope Boniface III in 607, so remember Gregory died in 604. Pope Boniface III in 607, just three years later, Pope Boniface declared himself the leader and head of the church around the whole world. So everywhere, he is the head of the church. He just took the title of Christ. He is the head of the church, the priest overall. And to quote Gregory again, whoever calls himself the universal priest, the, the head of the whole church, or desires that title, is by his pride the forerunner of the Antichrist. Now, Pope Boniface should have listened to his predecessor. Another reason why we also like Gregory is because uh, he learned from Augustine. Augustine was one of his mentors. Gregory taught that every person is born sinful, uh, with sinful nature, and that God alone, by his grace, can save sinners from their sin. God gives the gift of faith, and this is how sinners are saved. That's good. We agree. But he also taught that salvation comes from your baptism. And after you are baptized, you can only remove sins by doing good things. So, so once you're baptized, you have a clean slate. Everything that you had done prior to your baptism is washed away. And anything you do after your baptism, that's sin, lawlessness. The only way you can remove that from you, that stain, is by doing good works. Satis passio. And so think of your life as like a tally sheet. You got a column on the left and a column on the right. The column on the left uh, keeps track of all, all your sins, all the bad thoughts, and all your sinful things in thought, word, and deed. Not only the things you do, but the things you leave undone. So the negative commands and the positive commands of God, you're both breaking. And you, that list gets long. And then on the other side of the page, on the right-hand column, are all the things that you do good in faith. The... Uh, obedience to God. And so when you have obedience to God over in the right column, you get to mark one thing off over in the left column. And it's a tally sheet going back and forth. And if you have any sins that have not been dealt with, uh, then you still have more work to do. However, if you die, so if your tally sheet on the left outweighs your tally sheet on the right, and you kick the bucket, you have to go to purgatory to suffer for those sins that Jesus did not die for and did not forgive. Whatever sins you did not cover in your own good works. Pur this is called purgatory. The Roman church teaches it today. It is a place of fire between heaven and hell that purifies you so you can go to heaven. I asked the kids what they thought about that, and the first child said, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> and it is certainly not in the Bible. And I asked the kids, as well, if you confess your sins, as John tells us to in 1 John, if you confess your sins, will God forgive them? And yes, the kids all say, and I ask them why, and it's because Jesus died. That's not because of the good works we do. Uh, we cannot manipulate God to forgive us. You don't have to earn forgiveness. You just have to ask. 
And that's the good news of the gospel, of course, the forgiveness of sins through the death, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the gift of faith to trust that he paid our debt. All that stuff in the left column, all of that stuff in the left column, paid, done. The debt is gone. And uh, so this is one reason why we don't like Gregory, because he taught that there was a, some sort of middle ground. And again, this is the introduction of Greek philosophy, Greek uh, Platonic philosophy into the church, where we're told that, of course, in Hebrews, that no unclean thing can come before God. And so the idea is if you die unclean, if you die with sins still in your, in your uh, uh, debt account, how do you get them removed? And we would argue, of course, through the gift of faith by the blood of Jesus Christ. He, he is the one who does it. He's the sacrifice for sins. But Gregory said, you need to do it yourself. Jesus did that for you in your baptism, but now you need to remove them. And you can only do that with good works. And if you die before you do get rid of all those sins, then you have to go somewhere to pay for them. But then he thought that the living, so the living on earth can do good things on behalf of the dead. So there are dead people in purgatory who are suffering for the cleansing of their souls so that they can go into the heavenly places because apparently you can be saved apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And if you, so if your your grandma dies and she goes to purgatory, you can work really hard on her behalf and pay off her debt sooner. You can even have uh, communion on behalf of the dead. You can go to Mass and have communion on their behalf. So again, just more and more twisting of Scripture, more doubt, more fear, uh, more leading away from the cross and empty tomb. But on the good side of Gregory, he did say that uh, the church needed to get rid of icons and to stop vener venerating them. It is not appropriate to bow down to images in the worship of God. It's a breaking of the second commandment. And to this, we hardly agree. Uh, Gregory was very prolific in his writings. We have 838 of his letters to read yet today, uh, and, so, and his books, some of his books as well. He wrote some commentaries on the Bible, some theological treaties, and so on. Gregory also wanted pagans to become Christians. Good. And he began to uh, uh, this great mission work. North of Rome, across the Danube, to the Angles in England, uh, and to the barbarian tribes. He had his mind set on the Angles in England to evangelize them and bring them into the fold. He decided to start uh, with these barbarian tribes with the king of the Jutes named Ethelbert in 596. In 596, he sent a leader of a monastery named Augustine, not from Hippo. Remember, Augustine of Hippo died in 430. But Augustine of Canterbury, Augustine of Canterbury and those with him, um, he sent them to speak with the Jutes. He set up an arrangement for this missionary, this Bishop of Canterbury. Well, he wasn't the Bishop of Canterbury yet. That's how we call him in church history. He will become the Bishop of Canterbury. But Augustine was so afraid, him and his men, that they turned around partway through the trip and came back to the city of Rome, and Gregory had to force them to go. <laughs> You quit whining. Get up there. Tell them about Jesus. They arrived in, in Kent just after Easter in 597. And what they feared from the Jews, you know, they feared these barbarians would just bind them, torture them, and execute them. And what they feared is, did not come to pass. 
King Ethelbert welcomed them into his kingdom. He gave them permission to go anywhere they wanted freely, preaching the gospel. King Ethelbert was so impressed by how these men worshipped and lived their lives that Ethelbert became a Christian. And it's estimated that within four years, uh, around 10,000 Jutes were baptized into the church. So a great missionary effort, uh, a great blessing of the Lord. Gregory told Augustine, Pope Gregory told Augustine to stay there uh, with the Jutes. And Ethelbert, the king, uh, he loved Augustine and he gave him a palace in Canterbury. This is why we call him Augustine of Canterbury. And he became the first bishop in England. Around the Jutes, the Angles and the Saxons, uh, there were also the Celts. And of course, two folks that we need to talk about from the Celts are Patrick and Columba. Patrick lived from 430 to 490, and he was born in Scotland. We often associate, uh, many people think Patrick is Irish, uh, but he isn't. He's Scottish. He was kidnapped by the Irish and was made a slave for six years. While he was a slave, he became a Christian. He was able to escape, and he fled to France, where he joined a monastery and became a monk. But in his uh, in his learning, he desired to go back to Ireland and evangelize those who had made him a slave. The wicked Irish needed to hear about King Jesus. Patrick spent his time battling the darkness of pagan, pagan magic. This is wonderfully seen in his in the Lorica and St. Patrick's Breastplate. Wonderful song. Uh, the powers of creation, Patrick came to realize, are on our side because Jesus is the head and the ruler of the cosmos. Everything is upheld by the word of his power. He is the firstborn from the dead. All the powers and principalities in heaven and on earth bow to him. Patrick was not afraid of druids or of wizards or of any pagan magic because he knew that they were powered by demonic forces that have been subdued by Christ. Patrick was a very hard worker, and God used him to convert and change the heart of Ireland. This is one, one of the things Patrick wrote. He said, I am greatly in debt to God who has bestowed his grace on me so largely that many people were born again to God through me. The Irish, who never had the knowledge of God and worshipped only idols and unclean things, have now become the Lord's people and are called sons of God. And the sons and daughters of Irish kings are now monks and virgins of Christ. Ireland, because of Patrick's efforts, became known as the Island of Saints and Scholars. And historically, Ireland has a wonderful culture with the church. The other man, Columba, uh, Columba was an evangelist to Scotland. <laughs> and he lived from 521 to 597. He was born in Ireland. So Patrick was born Scottish and evangelized Ireland. <laughs> Columba was born Irish and evangelized Scotland. Uh, Columba grew to grew up and established churches and monasteries around uh, around Ireland until he went to Scotland in five in five sixty three A.D. It was Columba and twelve missionaries that take a lot of these guys back then took the model of Jesus and his disciples so there would be a leader and twelve men so so a company of thirteen uh, this is how you plunder the dragon um, Tolkien picks this up in the Hobbit. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> um, he was born in Ireland, grew up there, established churches and monasteries until he began mission work in Scotland. He and his 12 uh, missionaries with him made 
their little base camp on an island called Iona. And there they built a monastery and they would go across the, from island to island in ships to Scotland, bringing the gospel. Other Irish missionaries, of course, went to France and Belgium and Germany. And the Celtic church was so vibrant and strong uh, before Pope Gregory sent Augustine north to Kent and into England that the Celtic church did not agree that the Pope was the head of the church. So they, um, Roman missionaries went up there and they said to the Irish and to the Scottish, oh, oh, and by the way, this man Gregory, the bishop in Rome, is the head of the church here in Ireland. And they said, no, he's not. <laughs> and the Scottish said, no, he isn't. The church already existed there without him. They didn't need him. And if you know of anything of church history in Ireland and Scotland, the, the seeds of dissent and hostility began very early. Well, that is all I'm going to say on episode, what I say, episode 30, something like that. Thank you for this long trek through church history, although we only covered five centuries. I hope you enjoyed it, and we will pick up church history once again in the fall of this year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Please share these, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.